0: My hunch was that we would learn something important about physiological regulation that Western medicine hadn't gotten on to yet, hadn't come up with yet. That was my hunch and my goal and my hope.
1: I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. We've all got a dog in some fight. Something that we're committed to, something that helps to hold a sense of identity, or maybe a cause that gives us a tap root into something of sustenance. I can remember an encounter in acupuncture school between a fellow student and a teacher that we all respected and were just a little bit afraid of. It wasn't that he was mean or cruel, far from it, but he abided no bullshit. He had our future patients' well-being in mind, and he wanted them well cared for in our hands. I can remember a fellow third-year student coming into the intern room and saying, I like the treatment I gave that patient, and his response was something to the effect of your happiness and the outcome for the patient have nothing to do with each other. I hope it was helpful for your patient as well. I overheard that conversation over 20 years ago, and it's as fresh in my memory as this morning's coffee. It's a poignant reminder that what matters is what's helpful for the people that we're here to help. I don't know about you, but me, I hate getting it wrong. And in clinic, there are plenty of times when I don't get it right. I have a great idea, but it ends up being proven wrong by reality. I have a theory or a method, and I want it to be a trustworthy foundation. I want it to be right, and in turn, allow me to be right But the reality of clinic is that being helpful means often enough, the theory has holes in it. It's reliable to a certain degree, but it's not reality. A theory or a protocol are not the same as a person on our table with their completely non-textbook presentation. It's easy to identify with the methods that we like, the protocols that work mostly often enough. Many of us market ourselves as a certain kind of a practitioner. We have skin in a certain game. And I think commitment is important, probably vital, in fact, to go in with any kind of learning. But holding on to what's right can get in the way of being helpful. Are we seeing patients through the lens of the theory that we love? Or can we actually meet them in a moment of unscripted encounter and consider the possibility that another method might be more helpful. Comfortable enough in our own skin that we can not know what we're gonna do until the moment that it crystallizes into something through a genuine encounter. There's a big emphasis in our trade on being right, and I'm not suggesting that we don't take our work seriously. We should. The question that I often ask myself is, am I looking to make myself look like I'm right? or am I open enough to seeing when I'm off track? Have I put my patient in a comfortable box, or am I seeing the mystery and uncertainty of who's in front of me? As a practitioner, I do like being right, but I'm not sure that being right is always so helpful for my patients. In a moment, we're going to get into a conversation about research and inquiry with a researcher of neurobiology who has been curious About how acupuncture helps for mm, going on a couple of decades now. Richard Hammerslag, like many of us, became curious about acupuncture after it helped him. And so he brought his researcher's eye to looking into what was going on with acupuncture that we weren't seeing from the conventional medical framework. Some people in research and science have a narrative and are out to prove something. Others stand more in a place of inquiry and curiosity. It's that second stance that allows us to learn something new about the world and ourselves. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? Acufast Needles is doing something about that. You can, too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. I don't know about you, but sometimes, I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool. A sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-friendly needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of this solution, it's simple too. Visit accufastneedles.com slash geological to learn how.
2: Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful, and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit mayway.com to find the perfect Ponsar brand formula, or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Maywei.com. This season and every season, trust me Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine.
1: I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, The Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to janeapp slash switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code geological at the time of sign up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. You know, I love talking to researchers because those are folks that are professionally curious. I hope You enjoy this meandering conversation. Richard Hammerslag, welcome to Geological.
0: A pleasure to be with you, Michael.
1: Happy to be with you. We were together 21, 22 years ago or something. I was a student at acupuncture school. You were teaching us research methodology.
0: Yes. Um, Paul Karsten would invite me up to SIAM every couple of years because there was a requirement in the state of Washington for a master's program to have some research training.
1: Yes. And so we got some from you. I'm not, I'm not really a research guy. Um, I like talking to research people, but it, it's not like my ballywhack. It's just not the thing that draws me. However. I do remember in that class, and, and this has stuck with me until today, because you were talking about different research methods, and there's this and that, and da, da, da but the one that stuck with me was, um, I think it was called the standard of care comparison, and it was a very valid way of looking at how you study something like acupuncture, where you can't double-blind people. I mean, come on, you're going to double-blind an acupuncturist? I don't think so. Right but it was a way of looking at how does this method compare to that method?
0: Sure, Um, it's gotten a lot of good press now and more and more people are saying, we don't really know what sham acupuncture is because I guess bottom line there is, how do you develop a sham if you don't know how the real system works, Mm -hmm. works in terms of Western medicine? so you don't know you know what are you shamming how do you how do you sham something we'll get into later on in the talk how do you sham practitioners intention which is part of acupuncture treatment you know? mm. so it's a whole question of that acupuncture never should have gone down that road of pretending it's like a drug and so you have to figure out a placebo or sham and the research these days is called comparative effectiveness research and it didn't start with acupuncture it started with mainstream medicine you know when you are testing a new surgical procedure you want to test it against the existing procedure you want to see if it's better you want to see if it takes shorter time if it's more efficient uh, to do it so same with acupuncture you test it against uh, either the stand, a new acupuncture treatment against the standard acupuncture treatment, or an acupuncture treatment against whatever the standard of care is, which could, could itself be a drug, but I won't... I'll get off my soapbox in a second, but I'll just say one more thing about this, is um, when you're comparing acupuncture against usual care, You can get so much more clinically relevant information out of the research because you can say which has which treatment has fewer side effects you're comparing say acupuncture to a beta blocker for migraine which treatment has fewer side effects which treatment is more cost effective which treatment kicks in sooner which lasts longer so all of these Questions you can't get from comparing acupuncture to sham acupuncture, even if we knew what
1: that really was. Even if we knew what sham acupuncture was. Well, I think so often in the beginning, and it's probably because we're Westerners and you know, we're just acupuncture, what the heck is that? I think perhaps, and and correct me if I'm wrong here, originally the question probably was, does this stuff even work?
0: Does it work? And then there are a lot of people who, don't care whether it works or not, because there's no way to explain it in terms of Western medicine. That's the same argument you come into contact with in homeopathy. They don't care if you have clinical trials showing that homeopathy works. There's no way to explain it. So, you, you know, we've stopped debating with skeptics. Um, the, the skeptics who are out there in terms of integrative medicine give the word skeptic a bad name because as researchers or as clinicians, we should always be skeptical. That's a good thing to be. It's a good thing to be. It's not these these other people, skeptics, hide behind being skeptical when they really don't want to know the data. They don't want to know what the research findings are, and they don't want to know anything about integrative medicine, so so it's really not worth having uh, a serious debate with them is my feeling at this point.
1: You know, there's also the thing, and I notice my own mind doing this when there's something that I don't understand, or it's kind of confusing, or I haven't quite figured it out. There is this one part of me that goes, and eh, that's bullshit. Ah, that probably doesn't matter. That That's just my own hubris. It's just my own uncomfortableness that I don't understand it. And, With something like acupuncture, when we bring a Western mind to it, it's super hard to understand. And so it it seems there's a part of us that almost just has to like just put that to the side. It's like I may not understand it, and yet I've seen these results. I, I cannot argue with the results. I cannot deny the experience that I've had that things were different, but I got no flipping clue. As to why that just happened
0: yeah well i i have to say that first of all i should tell you that i'm a gemini so i love standing you know with one foot in the west and one foot in the east and um i had a long career in biomedical research and then um started to learn tai chi and one morning practicing outside my house I got this serious pain running up my leg when I did one of the kicks, even though Tai Chi is not a super external martial art, you still have these kicks and I thought I'd better slow down. And when it came around uh, the next time, uh, the pain shot all the way down the leg and I literally had to call to friends to carry me back into my house. And so it turned out I had an acute sciatica condition, and I was still pretty much a Western scientist then. I hadn't made the switch at all. And I went to, even to an orthopedic surgeon that was about as far out as I could go in addition to a neurologist. And in those days, I have to say this was the late 70s, showing my age, but there were only x-rays in terms of medical imaging so so i got these two separate opinions they both looked at the x-rays and they said good news uh there's nothing wrong with your spine and i gritted my teeth this is all of which telling you how i got into um why i was attracted to acupuncture but they said there's nothing wrong with your spine and i said what do i do about this pain and they said tell us what you would like to prescribe both of them said this and to knock down the pain i said what's the we don't want to knock down the pain we want to know what the problem is right so they say well yeah so this is doesn't show up in the x-ray so it's a soft tissue problem so we can't really help you and if you don't want us to prescribe something, that's it in terms of what we can do. So I was back home and I got a phone call because the Tai Chi master who I studied with, this was in the Los Angeles area, I was living in Santa Monica at the time, and he had a very large class. And so you did the whole form as far as you knew. And then when you got to the point where, when you were learning, he assigned one of the advanced students and there was a teaching room and they would teach you the next few steps and then the next class you could do even further with the with the whole class so so she called me up and she said you know where have you been you were doing well and learning it what's the problem and i started telling her the saga of the sciatica and and my experience and she left and she said okay mr western scientist it's time for acupuncture <laughs> that's literally what she said and i thought okay all right she's she's getting me here i've got to be open i am a a, a western scientist after well, all you're a
1: scientist that means you have an, in, an inquiring mind right
0: Yes, absolutely. And I certainly knew about I knew about um, acupuncture. It was several years after the New York Times reporter James Reston had been in China trying to get the first um, interview with uh, Mao Zedong mm-hmm. and had come down with what we know now was the major problem of appendicitis and they treated him the operation was in totally Western Hospital, but then they had asked him, would you mind if we tried treating you first for the post-operative pain with acupuncture? And don't worry if it doesn't work, we've got meds to back it up. And he said, fine, try it and the rest is history. I mean, it, it, it worked for him. It doesn't, we know it doesn't work for everybody, but fortunately it did work for him. New York Times reporter, front page story, let me tell you about my, operation in beijing or peking then, a one it was before it was before uh pinyin so it was Be- it was peking then and the and then lots of mds from the states groups went to china and all but here i am this this gemini and i'm with, with a back pain with the with the sciatica yes
1: yeah, and you're a scientist, so you're open-minded <laughs> and curious. And,
0: and I lived in Santa Monica, pretty close to UCLA, so I decided...
1: And you're in California, that helps.
0: Yes, the Pacific Rim, right? That didn't hurt at all. So, So I started going over to the biomedical library. At UCLA to see what this acupuncture was about. Mm. And it was about two years after the endorphins had been discovered. And very soon, there were two research reports, one from Beijing, we'll call it Beijing now, and the other from University of Toronto, both suggesting that at least acupuncture analgesia was working through the release of these endogenous pain suppressors these endogenous opioids so i was hooked you know gemini that i am and and here was this possible explanation for acupuncture in western terms so i was starting to to get into the running craze at that time mainly to strengthen my legs from the sciatica uh, strengthen the legs for tai chi and it became clear to me that i couldn't keep going with the tai chi and with the running and commuting from santa monica all the way into pasadena near pasadena which was where my research lab was so i put the tai chi carefully aside and kept running and and got a a massage therapist who was quite wonderful part of my support team And one day she said, you know, I know these two Chinese brothers who are starting an acupuncture college. And because of your interest in acupuncture, they need some people to teach the preclinical subjects, biology and biochemistry and some physiology. Maybe you'd like to talk to them. And I thought, "Okay, I'll go, you know, talk to them and call them up. And they invited me for lunch.
1: Yeah, Maybe get some acupuncture, too.
0: Uh, maybe. <laughs> Although this was quite a bit later and the sciatica had healed. But so they said.
1: How did you heal it? How did you originally heal it?
0: Uh, through, through. oh, sorry, I, I missed that. So she called me up, this, this advanced student from the Tai Chi class. Mm. She came over and she drove me up to was amazing to this cliffside beautiful home in malibu and i said where are we and she said well the acupuncturist her acupuncturist, had recently come over to taiwan until he found clinic space he was staying with one of his students here Mm -hmm. so i walk in and i see this elderly chinese gentleman sitting in the living room watching sesame street (laughs) and i think well what's that about so um They bring me into the treatment rooms and the same Chinese gentleman comes in and gives me this treatment. And we know that Chinese medicine knows where to put the needle in your buttocks. I mean, since it wasn't a problem with my spine, most of the time sciatica is just the buttocks muscle spasming, pressing on that sciatic nerve and giving you that radiating pain so puts the needle in and i'm amazed i get off the table and like 80 percent of the pain is gone you know and if you've ever had sciatica the the worst thing is is getting from standing to sitting or standing even onto the table and then back up to standing and here i am thinking wow this is amazing and those were the days the late 70s when you only got raw herbs Mm-hmm. So he gave me a whole batch of raw herbs. And that was my first experience with smelling up my kitchen. But I, I still think that the herbs smell better when there's something wrong with you. <laughs> they smell worse when, when maybe you're in the recovery phase or whatever. But anyway, here I am, Western scientist. Mm-hmm. So I took the herbs with me to work. And in my lab is something, if any of our listeners, are researchers, you know what a fume hood is. So it's a very heavy glass front that comes down over a, a, a place where you brew your reagents, your chemicals for your tests. So you don't, and it has a uh, an exhaust so you don't get those smells into the lab. So that's where I decided to brew
1: my- That's where you cooked your, that's a good idea. Yeah. So neighbors may not have liked it but it was good for it was good for you
0: yeah and and my colleagues would walk in and say what are you doing <laughs> what is that and i would explain to them the herbs and the acupuncture and in those days a very common comment was acupuncture you don't believe in acupuncture do you and i said look this is not a religion here this is something this is an intervention this is a medical intervention and we want to test it the same way we test any intervention. And that's how I sort of handled that. Anyway, that's that's what I left out of the story. So where were we? Oh, so well, I'm- You know,
1: wait a minute. So, but I, I've got a question. I just have to ask you this. It's just burning in my mind because you just brought this up about the part of belief. Well, you don't believe in that, do you? And so we've got this belief and all human beings have their belief systems and their belief structures. They're very, They're invisible to us. We know when someone's bumped up against our belief system because we get persnickety, usually, or angry, or, I mean, there'll be some kind of an emotional reaction when our belief system has been engaged in a way that makes us uncomfortable. And so, and I hear the same thing all the time, do I have to believe in this for it to work? You're a scientist, so you've got, I suspect, a more fluid, flexible belief system to some degree. But I am curious about the role of belief and how it might help or how it might hinder somebody in the process of doing research. And especially if you believe in something and you're doing research, how do you keep that bias of your belief system, which you're unconscious of, out of not just the process of doing it, but your initial inquiry into the questions that you investigate.
0: Great, great, great. Obviously, that's a segue into the placebo effect in general medicine.
1: Well, I don't know if it's placebo or not, I but it's just, it's one of the things that I wonder about these days, just recognizing how firm belief systems are and how they're, they're so, it's like, how do you soften up a belief system? That's a different question, but 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 I'll let you continue with. No, but
0: it's really great that you bring it up because you're. It, it's two levels here. One is obviously if you believe in any kind of medicine that you're getting, it's gonna it's gonna help. And the biology of belief is is um, the name of a, a really um, good current current Yeah. Book.
1: Is that Lipton? What's his, that it guy's absolutely
0: name? absolutely is Bruce Lipton. Bruce Lipton. Yes. Yes. Bruce Lipton. But in terms of research, which I think you're sort of also getting at, more and more we're seeing that the researcher is not the objective soul, that that's what the picture of research is painted to be. We have an investment in how the research turns out. I mean, we're getting grants. We have to support a family. We want our research to be good. We have to get good results to publish papers so we can get more grants, so we can continue to support our family. So the the myth of the objective researcher is a bit tarnished. And I'm saying that in a kind of negative way, but the positive way is there is increasing evidence that there is something called the researcher effect. So um, I could tell you just one, one tiny quick example. There was a researcher in France who believed that you could take a homeopathic remedy and digitize it and then send it to someone else who could then download it and have that remedy work.
3: It's at com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at Sturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you.
1: Now that is like the ultimate homeopathic intervention. That,
0: that is. That that's, is like, so... that's
1: like, okay.
0: So there is there is a, a a very open researcher who was the director of a now um, sunsetted research and, uh, well, a, a, mainly a research institution called the Samwelli Research Institute, which doesn't exist anymore. But Wayne Jonas, I'm sure he wouldn't mind my mentioning his name, was very interested in this possibility. And he got the researcher in France to send it to him. Mm. And... Um, so this french researcher was very excited and he came along with his technician flew over to the lab in in california where where which is a samueli research place they wanted to be there to see what would happen so they all arrived and they downloaded it and it was i believe it was a homeopathic remedy that caused an antibody antigen reaction in a petri dish they downloaded it and damned if it didn't work. So so at that point, the researcher
1: and- So what, hang on a second, hang on a second. Downloaded, what- da- Sorry, okay, so downloaded
0: means there's a way in which you can take the uh, the digitized information. And I don't know, you know, now that I'm saying it, I'm not sure exactly how they did it, but they if they have it near the Petri dish or there's a way to take that interface in some sort of liquid so that they can transfer it. In any way, they had a way to transfer it, which they had Mm -hmm. worked out.
1: And they had a Petri dish.
0: They had had the cells in the Petri dish Mm -hmm. and they got this response, this antibody-induced response. Okay, so so the story went that the researcher and his assistant were jet lagged and they went back to their hotel and Wayne and his research guy, John Ives, decided to look further into it and they couldn't make it work no matter what they did. So the next morning they called them back up and they said, what's the story here? We can't get this to work. Come back over. So they came back over. It
1: was working originally when they were there. Originally working when they were
0: there. Wayne and John could not reproduce it. Then the researchers came back over and it worked again. So to make a long story short, the variable they found was the, tech, the research technician. When the research technician was present, it worked. When the research technician wasn't present, it didn't, it didn't work. work. Okay. The research technician didn't even speak English. Was was a North African who spoke French. His name was Jamal, and they called it the Jamal Effect. But... Okay. This is <laughs> I,
1: I I love this kind of stuff because it's in some ways it's so wacky, but in some it's ways it's published.
0: Actually, I'm I'm not saying telling anything out of school. They 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 wrote up the whole experience. Yeah. Yeah.
1: No. 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 I I I didn't think you would. It occurs to me that physics, which is the hardest of sciences, right? We always consider physics as the hardest of sciences. And like over a hundred years ago, roughly a hundred years ago, they're coming up with some crazy stuff in physics, right? Things like, oh, well, there's an experiment here, but the observer observing the experiment changes the experiment. Yes. Right? Yes. Is that Heisenberg or Schrodinger? One of those cats. I, I can't- Heisenberg. Heisen- yep. Heisenberg uncertainty principle.
0: That's right.
1: i lo- I just love that the uncertainty principle. I'm thinking, <laughs> you know, I, I have an acupuncture clinic and I deal with uncertainty every day, right? I yes. uncertainty principle. Yes. And and so here we are, looking at biology, looking at medicine, and it would stand to reason that if if we're dealing with physics, hardest of the sciences, and we have observer effects in that, why wouldn't we have it? In our clinics.
0: Sure, it reminds me of of a time way back when, maybe twenty years ago, there was a a small conference in Seattle when people were trying to figure out what integrative medicine was. a so conference on integrative medicine. I don't think they've still completely understood. I, I was going
1: to say, do we understand what that is now? Yeah, <laughs> but
0: <laughs> but I was sitting with some people there actually two acupuncturists remind me of the the man and wife who wrote between Harriet and Ephraim who wrote between heaven cornfield, and earth so yeah. Cornfield yeah and Corngold so i was sitting with them at lunch and we were talking about you know how did this integrative medicine suddenly people are coming out of the woodwork who have been doing it and and there had been a recent major survey you may remember of across the country that was done by Dr. David Eisenberg at Harvard about the use of other things than mainstream medicine. And that study found that, if I'm remembering correctly, not only how many people were using, in fact, they, they called it unconventional medicine at that time, it was a really kind of derogatory term.
1: You know what? Wait a minute. I like that term. <laughs> I well, I might just have to, I like the idea not being of alternative, yep. not being of complementary. I'd like the idea of being an unconventional medicine practitioner.
0: No, but then in China, Western medicine is unconventional. So, you know, it's... That's okay. I, that's, that, that's okay.
1: I'm down with unconventional. <laughs> Good. So,
0: <laughs> actually, when NIH was forced by Congress to first... Look into this. What people were using? They called this little office the Office of Unconventional Medical Practices because somebody liked the acronym UMPs, Unconventional Medical Practices. That was <laughs> a, what it was originally called. It very quickly got the name changed to the Office of Alternative Medicine. But anyway, so we were sitting around.
1: I don't no, man. I, I think I'm going to take it. I'm going to take it back. I, I want to <laughs> own that. I like it.
0: Okay. Okay feel free, of course. So, so um, how did suddenly this survey show that so many people were using it, so many people were actually beginning to practice something that was being called integrative medicine? And I said, you know, this sounds familiar. You start to look at something and just by looking at it, it changes it. And I said, we're just going to call this the Eisenberg of effect so Mm. so and harriet or somebody said oh heisenberg eisenberg it's all the same thing but it's what you're saying is just by looking at something trying to measure it trying to quantitate it trying to do a survey even it changes it and people start to to see there's more people who are being accepting accepting of integrative medicine and the, all the practices that, that entails Chinese medicine and Ayurvedic medicine and herbs, and even osteopathy at that point was considered in that ballpark.
1: Well, the old, the old school osteopathists, you know, who really work with their hands in the cranial system, that's still considered some pretty, pretty out there stuff by conventional medicine. For sure. Yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah so, so I, you know, I got interested after my acupuncture treatment and and reading about these studies about the endorphins and acupuncture analgesia, you know, I started thinking that naturopathic medicine, chiropractic, massage, these are still by and large, riffing off the Western biomedical model. Mm. And mm-hmm. then here comes Chinese medicine. And wow, they're seeing a whole different body.
1: Yes, Chinese medicine, physiology. We literally, not literally, I mean, we do. We look through a whole different set of lenses and filters. Yes. Body looks completely different. Not completely different, but very different to us.
0: I got very intrigued. And, Mm. you know, one way of looking at it that I liked that I remember at, at the time was... But Mr. Fuller was talking about we need a language based in verbs, in, in doing, not, not things, not nouns and things. But, and it, so it seemed to me that Western medicine was more about
1: things. Yes, it, it makes things nouns. And Chinese medicine is about looking at processes and movement. It's yes. more verb. Yes, you that's got a it. Great point. I hadn't thought about that, Richard, but that right. is it's absolutely about true.
0: Flow and process and that's what and an energy flow and I loved that idea. So after you know, I recovered from my sciatica. I talked with the two brothers, um, many of you will recognize and guess correctly that it was Daoxing and Mao Xing Ni that I was talking to, and they were just starting Yosan at the time. And so I said to them, you know, I don't really know anything about the curriculum at Chinese medicine schools, and they brought out their catalog and they showed me that, that you know, that you have to learn uh, at least surface anatomy because that's part of how you identify do point location. You have to know uh, pharmacology to start doing, thank you, John Chen. You have to know herb drug interactions. So there was a lot and I said, this is really great that students are learning the basis of two med- two medicines, but who's bringing the two together? I said, I'm a Gemini. And they got a kind <laughs> of deer in the headlight look and they said, what do you mean? And I said, well, uh, wouldn't it be great if we could start understanding how the two are working in ter- each in terms of the other? And I said, you know, besides, I don't really want to come into a Chinese medicine school because at that time, people were going to Chinese medicine because they didn't want the reductionist biomedical model. And they didn't want the... I I would have a lot of flack that I would be up against in trying to teach Western biology and physiology. And I, I had a hard enough time in my career teaching the preclinical subjects to biomedical students by the way i don't when i say medical school i don't like the term because somehow biomedicine thinks it's theirs as if chinese as if acupuncture college isn't medical school as if naturopathic college isn't medical school it's so anyway that's just
1: it well there's our difference between the conventional and the unconventional yes right if it's not conventional well then it must be something else how could it be medicine if yes. it's not conventional, well, there's medicines mm-hmm. that fall outside the rubric of what you consider convention.
0: Yeah. Claire Cassidy, who some of your listeners may have known, was a research director at um, one of the few uh, five element schools in the country in, in Columbia, Maryland. And she always would use the term non-biomedical uh, as a, instead of unconventional. But anyway, the, lots of terms. So, so Dao and Mao said to me, you know, um, okay, you don't want to teach um, biology or physiology for us. How about coming up with, um, create an elective and do your thing and try to see how you can talk about one um, medicine in terms of the other. So I'm, I... I Sorry to say that what I called the course I would never do um, now, but I we called it biomedical understanding of acupuncture, as if there was a way of explaining it away, um, and losing its own poetry, losing its own explanatory model. So it was not a good choice, but um,
1: but you know what, it was a good choice at the
0: time. At the time, it was was, was yes,
1: and, and this is this is the thing that I love about evolution, and this is the thing that I love about learning, and this is the thing that I love about following an inquiry, right? That class for you was a kind of an inquiry. And the name of that class was reflective of the inquiry that you had. And so you did that and you got some information and you learned something, and then you go, ooh, you move on to the next thing. It's not that it was wrong. That was the stepping stone that you had to step on before you get to the next one.
0: In any case, the class was very popular. It surprised all of us because it was very helpful for the students and the faculty who sat in on it to be able to explain to their biomedical colleagues when they were doing collaborative patient care or when they were looking for, at that time it was very rare for acupuncturists to get hospital privileges.
1: Yeah, yeah. So you were teaching them to be bilingual
0: exactly thank you Mm -hmm. thank Mm -hmm. you thank you exactly and that was very helpful for a number of them who wanted to make these uh ties these bridges with the biomedical community so that class uh, went from an elective to a requirement Mm. and then one day i got a phone call from Daoxing knee, saying, could we take a hike together? So if there were similar small things he wanted to talk about, we just talked on the phone, but if there was something more important, he would say, can we take a hike together? So Sweet. Um, we, we walked up in Will Rogers Park, I remember, and he said to me, would I consider making a career switch? Would I consider coming and being full-time at Yosun University? And for me, I have to say, and I'm sure they would smile now because it was, it was true in retrospect. Here there is an acupuncture college calling itself a university and it had three classrooms. That, that was it. It even had a clinic that Mao and Dao had there saw their patients in the morning while there were classes and in the afternoon it became the university, quote, clinic.
1: Hey, wait a minute. You you just described the early days of (laughs) SIOM. Well, yes. (laughs) SIOM was interesting to me because,
0: if I remember right, didn't they require students to learn Chinese?
1: They required us to take Chinese every single quarter that we were in school. Now, they were not teaching us to speak it. They were trying to teach us how to read it, which, I mean, at the time for me, that was, I mean, I I spent my life up till a a certain point actively avoiding learning any language because I'm terrible at learning languages. Michael,
0: how can you understand the property of a point if you don't know its Chinese name?
1: Well, it helps if you know the Chinese name. I'm kidding. It helps. It helps. It definitely helps. Yes. But there's other ways of interacting with a point and interacting with a person. There's other ways we have of sensing and bringing our sensibilities that you can learn about it. But yes it is true if you can read the chinese and the point says construct the interior Ooh, maybe i could use that for digestion especially because it's one point to the south of ren 12 you know super super helpful so there is that piece but yes they did have a requirement to to learn chinese to read it
0: right and as someone learning tai chi i loved learning the name bubbling spring for kidney one because yeah. that's where the energy came from. I loved yeah.
1: it. And it's actually, Richard, it's easier if you know the Chinese, and especially if you can read the Chinese and you know what it means, learning things like herbal formulas becomes very easy. It's, I mean, it's super simple because it's not this conglomeration of these weird words, but it... The name of the formula usually tells you what 's in it, what the main herbs are, or what the main function is, and so if you know the chinese it, it's it's easy it makes it easy but
0: Siam was pretty unique in those days in that in that requirement and it's, i the, the other thing that that was really interesting to me is how Siam was having you begin in the clinic, so you got one quarter of TCM acupuncture and another quarter of five elements style and another quarter of Toyohari yeah. and you know and so a lot of this I remember going out to lunch with a, I don't know if you were one of the people going out to lunch with me when I was teaching over that weekend and I said how 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 are you digesting all of this in the clinic? and they I got a lot of people who rolled their eyes and said it was really confusing.
1: Yeah, it is it is confusing. Yeah. I wouldn't say and when I reflect back on my experience I wouldn't say I digested it. And I would say I was given a glimpse. I wasn't given a lot of answers in acupuncture school. But I was given some very potent questions that helped me out to this day. Yep. I would Great. say that education gave me that. And the other thing and this is why I went to SIOM, the amount of clinic that you did was far and above way above every other school. The first year that you were in school, you were in clinic like from day 1. So we had like hundreds of hours of of observation in the first year, which again, then when you were in school and you're studying the didactic and the theory, the teacher would go. Remember this patient we saw this morning at nine o'clock. Remember this thing they had. That's what we're talking about. And and it, and then everything kind of snaps to grid, right? Because you've had an experience of it, not just a, a mental construct. So that I found that helpful. Yeah, yeah.
0: So there I am. There I am at Yosan, and I've really i decided to make this career switch from. 25 years of biomedical research to to acupuncture research but my not so silent ulterior motive was to get them to start a research department because if acupuncture colleges are going to become more academic Mm -hmm. every every academic institution has has a research department and it's part of every department it's not a separate research department so I uh, that was my hope in, in switching to to yosun and it wasn't realized they weren't ready to do it and i i'll tell this story just because we talked before we came on air about paul carsten one of the two founders of siam i was fairly good friends with Paul having met him and we, we clicked and I got Paul to come down to Yosan and I got Yosan to agree for Paul was doing, had, was doing a lot of work at the time for the accreditation commission for the acupuncture colleges. So this was a kind of pre-accreditation interviews and survey he did as to what was the future of Yosan going to be. I mean it was this wonderful small um, Taoist it was one of the few, I don't think the, even the Hawaii school that was Taoist existed at that time, that really had pretty in-depth Taoism throughout your curriculum. But it was, it was small, and Paul interviewed, bless his soul, the, the board, uh, the students, the faculty, the staff, as to what everybody thought, and he said when he met with the board the next day, he said, "You know, I think you guys have two real choices. You're going to stay small, be Taoist, or really make the moves that that I and a few others were hoping for. And they weren't ready to do it.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: So I decided that was after three years at Yosan, I decided to resign because I really wanted to do research. And
1: yeah. so were you also, it sounds like you had a vision." for how chinese medicine education and chinese medicine just in general in the states could grow especially if you have the research element and let's face it in this world if you don't have that you're not going to get that far
0: yeah Yep. Yeah. so so when the word got out in the community that i had resigned from yosan a few weeks later, I got a wonderful phone call from uh, Liza Goldblatt, who at the time was not only the the chair of the Council of Colleges of Acupuncture, of, of Acupuncture, but she was also the president of OCOM, of the Oregon College of Oriental Medicine ah, in Portland.
1: That's what got you up to the Northwest.
0: So she she said, you know, come up. I, I want to talk to you. She flew me up and we talked. And she basically said, what would it take to come up here? Because I've talked to my board and they're willing to make the plunge and start a research department. And at the time my daughter and her husband lived in Portland and the first of my grandkids was born. So for me to have a chance to move to Portland was a no brainer.
1: That was pretty easy, wasn't
0: it? <laughs> that was very easy. It was also an amazing opportunity because, so I, I arrived in Portland in maybe September or October. In fact, it was September because I remember when I signed my contract, it was $9,999. And I remember um, thinking to myself, I didn't say anybody out loud, that I'm going to give this hopefully i'm going to give this 10 years and i'm going to retire for the second time first was from biomedicine then i will retire from from acupuncture on oh nine oh nine oh nine that's what that's so so
1: that's a good plan that's a great 2000
0: that was my plan and it it worked and but back to 1999 was amazing because we said earlier how Congress had gotten the NIH, basically ordered the NIH to, to start this tiny office of what other people were using besides biomedicine. And in 99, Congress again got the NIH to up the ante And NIH has three levels of organization, uh, these tiny offices. So there was an office of what they called orphan diseases. At the time, there was an office of women's studies, but they were all minor as well as the Office of Alternative Medicine. I want to
1: interrupt for just a second. Congress said to the NIH, go investigate this stuff. How did that happen? I'm thinking about like Congress these days, right? How, what was going on politically in that moment? Congress would give money to that. That's. Wait, I got
0: to. Re- I got to remember his name. He was the. He was the senator from Iowa at the time. Who we all owe this amazing favor to. Somebody's going to call up and tell you who it was. I'm just blocking on his name so he was not only senator from iowa he was the head of the senate appropriations committee at the time
1: he had a little bit of power there
0: he oversaw the budget hearings Mm. so the woman at the time who was the head of the nih i think she she was from the cleveland clinic if i'm remembering right she came down and anyway i'm blocking on his name this the senator, but he had really bad allergies and had gone on a personal trek around to see what he could do. And he finally hit on, I'll, I'm sure I'll remember his name in a second, hit on bee venom, somebody. Mm. Um, and that was finally the thing that cured his allergies. So he had forewarned the other members of his committee that he was going to ask the head of the NIH, what were they doing to look into all of these other kinds of interventions? And she didn't know what was coming. This is the story I've heard. So this is probably second or third hand. But I think this is, this is a good story, but let's not say it's the gospel. But anyway, what happened was, after she went through the normal budget presentation, the, the chair said to her, you know, we regard the NIH, fortunately at that time, the same way as we do mom and pop and apple pie. It's, it's one of the basic tenets, underpinnings of of our country and our society. And of course, we're going to give you the increase in financing that you've asked for. But we also are interested in knowing what the NIH is doing about these other kinds of interventions, these unconventional practices that people seem to be using. And she said, excuse me, I believe I'm quoting what I've heard, right? She said, excuse me, the NIH studies real medicine. And he said, excuse me, the NIH will study what people are using and seeing if it's effective or not that is the mandate of the nih so she went back got her um, budgetary increase but she also got with her a mandate to start something some way of looking into other treatments so they started this office of alternative medicine so by the time of 99 when i was going up to portland congress To answer your question congress had decided that the initial efforts of this small office were so helpful that they boosted it up to the second rank of organization nih so above office and below the institutes that we all know of the the national heart institute and the national institute of mental health is something called so it was called ncam Centers. So they're, they're centers. So it became NCAM, the National Center for Complementary and Alternative Medicine. And so that to to get and so they had a much more substantive budget as a center than an office. And to get started, they were giving very large what were called program project grants to conventional medical centers to do collaborative research with acupuncture colleges, with naturopathy, with chiropractic, with osteopathy, and I get there in 99, and that fall, they announced the first five grants, and two of them were in Portland, and I, like, sort of died and gone to heaven.
1: In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. 2024 to save 10% off Unico Needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. So this so you were just in the right place at the right time Absolutely. the movement in the country the government you just you just happened to be in the It
0: was it was a wonderful time because Portland at that time I think there's one or two other cities now but Portland at that time was the only US city that had an acupuncture college a chiropractic college a naturopathic college and massage schools and so they were very well positioned to work together so one of those grants went to the medical school the oregon health and science university and the other went to to kaiser and the kaiser grant was to look into actually dental and oral hygiene and the ohsu the medical school grant was in neurology and in both cases there were going to be uh collaborative research so the kaiser did some very fine studies on tmd uh, acupuncture and chiropractic and naturopathic care for tmd
1: tmd is what's uh, the, sorry what used TMJ. to be called
0: tm used to be called tmj and oh, now now it's... now it's called more it's not just the jaw so it's jaw and shoulders and sometimes it's really more systemic so it's been called tmd temporomandibular disorder
1: time for me to update my language and ideas
0: okay and and um the medical school's area of focus was in neurology so we did some fascinating studies on um, ms for example um ms fatigue with other um approaches so so it was a, a wonderful time to be in Portland and to to be doing trying to get research started. So here I was trying to get a, a bona fide research department going at an acupuncture college, and right away we had major NIH funding. I mean, who would have thought that was even possible?
1: You totally had the wind at your back with that. That's that's amazing. So you know, it, I mean, as a researcher, you know, we we're talking about belief earlier, and 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 you're this open-minded guy. I'm curious over the time that you've been doing research work with with uh, acupuncture and Chinese medicine what are some of the more curious things that you discovered that came out of the work things that really you know it's like you weren't looking for them they just like it's like wait what what's that what yes yeah
0: my hope when i went into acupuncture research is that acupuncture would if we really understood how acupuncture worked not in its own explanatory model but in western terms i mean if you're getting clinical benefit there has to be at some point some explanation within the western biomedical model but my my hunch was that we would learn something important about physiological regulation that western medicine hadn't gotten on to yet hadn't come up with yet and that was my hunch and my goal and my hope and it happened when i now that i look over it's more like 20 years back my 10 years in acupuncture research and the 10 years since but several things struck me as i learned more and more about the explanatory model of acupuncture and each of those maybe i'll just talk very briefly about three aspects of acupuncture in chinese medicine that really fascinated me so Mm -hmm. one was external qigong you know there, there there are ways i mean reiki and external qigong and and healing touch and therapeutic touch they're all kind of cousins, and we now call them biofield therapies. But we have explanations within the biomedical model of how even light touch, light massage, or light touch from Reiki or from external Qigong can cause clinical benefit through release of hormones like oxytocin through specialized sensory nerve endings. But we don't have a clue how you can get clinical benefit without physical touch. So I got fascinated with that aspect through learning about external Qigong. And that eventually led me to actually do what we call a systematic review and to look through the published studies and to see how many studies there were of external Qigong and Reiki and healing touch and as we mentioned before, that didn't use physical touch. When you go clinic, if you're trying to see does Reiki or external Qigong work clinically, then you want to make sure that your research protocol mimics exactly what's happening in the clinic, and you want to do hands-on and hands-off, both the way it's done. Mm-hmm. But I was fascinated by whether there was sufficient evidence that treating without physical touch could bring clinical benefit. And I'm happy to say that we did this a systematic review of the literature and did the right statistics and everything? And the answer was yes, amazingly so, that there is sufficient evidence to suggest that you don't need physical contact to get clinical benefit. So that, once we understand what that's all about, surely we are going to understand what biofields are and how there are many other aspects of my original training was as a biochemist so i learned all of the biochemical oriented biochemically based physiological regulatory mechanisms so it turns out that there are many and more and more being discovered physiological regulatory mechanisms that aren't biochemical that uh, we're starting we're starting to use the term biofields so so for ex- just for example
1: yeah what is this like a like rupert sheldrake's idea of morphogenic fields is this similar or related well
0: th- that's they're they're all coming from the same new way of thinking i would certainly say but a biofield is well for example an eeg or an EKG from the heart and ECG from the heart, those are electromagnetic fields. And in fact, the heart has the strongest, it's about a hundredfold more powerful than the brain. And so preliminary studies being done up at the Heart Math Institute in Central California have actually shown that you can detect the magnetic field of the heart from up to several feet away. So you can get all the kinds of information that you would normally get from contact electrodes up to several feet away because those fields are so strong. So that so that if you and I were in the same sound studio, Michael, th- we could imagine that our biofields were actually interacting.
1: Yes. Well, I've been clued into recently the polyvagal theory and how there's this incredible nerve complex that that regulates us in a variety of ways but part of what it also does is it mediates and it uses our social context as a way of regulating our individual system you know we're living here in the midst of covid-19 right now as we're having this conversation one of the things that's happening is people are very isolated they're in their homes And, you know, we don't have that social milieu that as as social creatures is so important to our well-being. And when I hear you talk about biofields, they come off the body, you were just saying if we're in a shared room together, our fields are influencing each other. And now we're living in a moment where we don't have that.
0: Right. I think that whole concept... Um, is one of the ways in which our society has gone off the rails of forgetting how interconnected we all are and this concept of America of the rugged individual and that you as a separate individual, all you have to do is, you know, work hard at school and, you know, you too can become the president of the company. This, this is one of the basic credos that we just have to step back back from. I mean it, it it blends right into the Darwinian survival of the fittest, you know, which is also a big myth that has taken us off the rails. There are so many good studies now to show that cooperation is as much a part of nature and how species survive, collaboration and cooperation, as, as competition. And everybody on the street you know at every economic socioeconomic bracket knows about survival of the fittest you know as if that's something to be proud of and it's not uh, um, it's not a given in nature it's just one perspective it's only one theory and it only describes part of nature and it's so important to know that much of nature is based on cooperation and collaboration and we've lost that and forgotten that and alan watts i love alan watts was one of the gurus back in the back in the 60s and he had what he called the chauffeur theory of existence he said one of the worst things we do for our children and that survives in us is to is to tell our children to think that the function of our body is to carry me around, to drive me around. That's what he calls the chauffeur theory of existence. So that me is inside my body and the body is taking me around. I mean, he says that leads to isolation and separation and eventually to neuroses and psychoses. He was writing his book, when I heard him speak about this, when I was in graduate school, he was writing his book, Psychotherapy East and West. Mm -hmm. But he he was a wonderful speaker. And so this whole concept of why, you know, one of the things I would love us to think about when we are in this social isolation, we are sheltering at home, is how not to come back to the same society that we left. I mean, the, we want to restart the economy so quickly, so we can have the same types of inequalities that we've had before. How do how do we start thinking differently about the society we want to re-enter once we're able to do that?
1: I wonder if this enforced and perhaps extended. We don't know how long this goes. Period will allow some things to break down enough that maybe we can come back to it a little softer and come back and, and like reconfigure our life together in a different way. I mean, I, I tend to be an optimist. It of course could go very badly, but I also kind of caught into the whole idea about it's hard to tell the difference between things falling apart and things falling together. And sometimes things need, things need to come far enough apart to let old structures release.
0: One of the latest developments that I'm excited about is the governors of California, Oregon, and Washington coming together, just as a whole group of East coast governors are coming together and saying, if the feds are not going to figure out how we can get back on our feet, then we're going to do it as, as regions. So, so, many people would argue that the United States is too large, too cumbersome, and too divided. And we've got to get like-minded people together to come up with new ways. So we need smaller incubators to test new ways. We're not going to suddenly test a new way of society at the national level. It's not going to happen. So if the forward thinking of governors, and of course I'm us to the West Coast, because I'm living in Oregon now. I hope that our three governors, and certainly Jay Inslee has been one of the most outspoken persons on not forgetting about the climate crisis, which is not going away, much as we're making temporary changes in the environment that seem to be for the better. As we go back to what we're going to go back to, can we design it in a way that we can begin to mitigate everything we've been doing to encourage and allow the climate crisis to happen. Um, Certainly, um, the governors of Oregon and California have all also been quite forward-thinking and early adopters of the measures to help to suppress the spread of the virus. Mm So I I think the bottom line there is what I'm saying is we should be able to try different approaches regionally and see what works. The same approach may not work in every kind of society.
1: You know, this this is a very Chinese medicine way of thinking about it, that different things, given different environments you'll need different things because the environment is different. The challenges are different. The resources are different. The excesses, the deficiencies are different. Yes. And so if you have a whole big giant country like the United States, it's a little harder to get a handle on that. But yeah, if you got West Coast, uh, I remember reading a book years ago. I think it was called something like The Nine Nations of North America. Oh, yeah. Remember that?
0: Not only do I remember it, I saw something recently where they took that map. I don't think it was in this morning's paper. I think I saw it online someplace. But yes, I know what you're talking about. Yeah,
1: And the idea was that the United States is actually a number of different countries all glued together, that there's these regional differences and there's this sort of similarity and cohesion between certain regions because of, you know, history or culture, you know, whatever. Right. And that if if we could function more as these autonomous kinds of units, it might be better for all of us. And and certainly, you know, in a moment of crisis like we're in, it seems there's more of a how do I say it? Willingness to try something new, because what usually worked, it's not like, oh, that won't work. It's like, no, it's not even here anymore. I,
0: I I love your term willingness, and I see the problem is that people like us who are more advantaged, shall we say, are more willing to try new things, whereas the millions and millions of people out of work need to have that cash flow coming in to put the food on their table for their family. And so it's up to us to have new ideas that are so appealing and so readily able to put into practice that people will adopt them as they come back to a new normal but we we can't forget that we are among the more privileged to actually be i mean millions and probably billions of people aren't able to shelter at home because they don't have homes or because they live in housing where there are multiple people to a room and they don't have the the luxury to shelter in place in a way that's beneficial
1: i mean it, it reminds me of what you were just saying there is that part that says it's about who eats who in Dar- darwinism there is that aspect and that is true. The other piece about who helps who and how we work collaboratively and cooperatively and interdependently, that's also true. And it it seems like we're in a very fertile moment of figuring out how do we work with all this stuff, which which is probably really... uh, Content for another conversation. I want to I want to come back here a little bit more to research and then we need to wind this down because sure, because we're usually keep these to an hour. But, you know, sometimes these things just run on because, well, you know, conversations have their own life cycle. (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, let me let me just tell you then quickly and see if you're interested in going deeper in either of these. So the, we talked about the external Qigong triggering my interest in how off-the-body healing, uh, non-physical touch healing can, quote, work, what that can tell us about how our body is functioning. And I also very interested in from Chinese medicine perspective of what intention is. We talked about that earlier, this E, this YI transliterated concept of intention.
1: So I would love to talk about that, but here's the thing about talking about E, that is a long conversation. So here's what I, here's here's what I want to do. I'd love to have you come back for a part two. We can just jump into E and just run with it. Great. And just give it its own fertile space to unfold. But but for now, I'd like to kind of wind this down. I want to, I want to come back to this like off the body healing, so to speak. Sure. And because we are here in COVID-19 and there's a lot of people starting to get online because it's like, oh, I got to get my practice online. But I'm a guy who uses needles and I'm used to using needles and I, you know, I'm not, I'm probably not going to get online and teach people to do acupressure, because as far as I'm concerned, that just doesn't have the punch that the needles have. But is there something about this other system that you're talking about, this like off the body regulating system that that you could do if you were sitting on one end of a computer screen?
0: All I can say is I've I've heard from a lot of reiki practitioners from other biofield therapy practitioners that they do distant healing now i'm not talking about you know intercessory prayer distant prayer that's a whole nother area that we could talk about but there's very little in what i in, when i say that i looked at the research on off the body healing I'm talking still about being in the same room. I'm being right, right with the, the your your client, your the we would say subject in research, um, and I'm not talking about distant healing, about being able to heal people, you know, across the across the street or across the state or across the continent. So I don't know, even I'm not willing to say if what is happening by treating off the body in a proximal sense when you're just about inches is even if that's the same phenomenon as what's happening we just don't know enough about it so we're at the stage no another I talked about Alan Watts being one of my heroes growing up another one of my heroes was Aldous Huxley because I remember from an essay of his he was talking about zoology and he was saying how the the collector of species had to proceed the zoologist because you had to know enough of what the different animals were before you can begin to see the similarities and the differences and to come up with the families and the species and the genera and whatnot. And we're sort of at the same stage with the bio it's why I don't like to talk about capital B biofield. Mm-hmm because then that can people say oh you mean the aura and i don't know what we mean yet so i'm talking about the what i call the little b biofields so the eg and the ecg are little b biofields biophotons which are fascinating area of research we could talk about sometimes in the body how light particles released in part by chemical reactions have information properties, informational carrying properties themselves.
1: So that might hone back into intention, wouldn't it?
0: It certainly could. It certainly could be something that's underlying intention. Anyway, the one last thing I just wanted to say, and and we can, I'd be delighted if we could talk about it in, a, in another session, and that really is acupuncture as a rebalancing system. What does that mean in terms of physiology. You know, when we uh, just do a quick riff here, the endorphins were discovered because somebody asked the question, morphine suppresses pain, but we don't know how to, how it does that. So maybe morphine is acting on a receptor in the body. And if that's what's happening, then maybe there's something in the body that morphine is mimicking. So you're talking about Candace Perts work. Yes. She she was command central and she got aced out of a share of the Nobel Prize for the endorphins, but that's a whole other story. But so I'm thinking, you know, maybe acupuncture is a rebalancing system maybe there's an endogenous rebalancing system that's going on 24/7 that we don't really know about that when that can't work as well as it does we need acupuncture to give that a stimulus right but another discussion
1: it's another discussion and it really i'm just going to i'm just going to stick a pin in this for the moment and then we're going to come back to this in another, in another discussion. But people often ask me at the end of an acupuncture treatment, it's like, what did you put on the needles? What was that? It's like there was nothing on the needles and nothing was put into you. Acupuncture can only call out something from within you. It, it can call a response. It doesn't put it. I mean, it does put some stimulation. Granted, okay, we do that. But what's happening is there is something in them that is called up. And so when I hear you talking about this system that recalibrates, I go, Ooh, I want to know more about that. So, so we'll come back around to that. Sounds great. Richard, thank you so much for a delightful time. It's,
0: Oh, it's been a pleasure just having this conversation. And I learned so much since I'm not an acupuncturist by talking to acupuncturists. I always loved those early stages of planning, a research study by having acupuncturists at the table to tell me, you know, how, how we need to design the study so that it mimics what's actually going on in clinical practice. And anyway, so I love talking with acupuncturists. So we'll continue the conversation. Sounds pleasure. good.
1: Talk to you then. Okay. Thanks, Michael. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation,